If you'll turn now in your Bibles to Psalm 124, we're going to consider this this evening. And perhaps after singing it, you're wondering and you're realizing, okay, that's not Psalm 23. It's no Psalm 91. It's no Psalm 103. That's a really interesting psalm. What does this mean for us? I mean, we don't really have too many enemies rising up against us, at least not here. How does this apply to us? How, what does this mean? Uh, and that's exactly the reaction that I had when I first opened this text and started studying it. And so I hope together this evening that our study will be beneficial and fruitful to you in seeing how this psalm is of great benefit to your life uh, and your daily walk. Uh, so this is Psalm 124. That is the holy, written, and inspired word of God. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. A song of ascents of David. <clears throat> if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to consider your word this evening, we know that you promised by your spirit to be with us, uh, to bless the teaching of your word, to by it um, create and strengthen faith in our hearts, and we ask that you would do so now. Uh, this evening. Uh, give us hearts of understanding, give us ears to hear, um, and eyes to see, for we ask it in Christ's name, by the aid of his Spirit, amen. Uh, one of my favorite stories is a, a novel by Cormac McCarthy entitled The Road. As you might imagine from a title like that, it's a story about two pilgrims. It's particularly a story about two pilgrims in a post-apocalyptic world. Now, if such a thing could be imagined, you might close your eyes and you might see a world where the sky is perpetually dark, where ash fills the air, the sun no longer touches the face of the earth, uh, and animals have either been eaten off or died and crops no longer grow without the light of the sun. It's a, it's a very dark world. But it gets worse. You might, you might see a world where several years after such a catastrophic event that ended modern civilization, the majority of the populace are dead, save those ruthless enough to, uh, who have developed this kind of survival instincts that are necessary to survive in such a world, along with perhaps a few outliers uh, who have somehow, with good hearts, survived to this point. Enter our two pilgrims, an old father whose strength is failing him, whose wife chose death instead of life in such a world, and whose son is still too young to look after himself and survive. The tale documents how this poor, old, decrepit father and his small little boy are met by a number of villains whose humanity and decency has long since been exchanged for the ruthlessness and the malice that is required uh, to survive in a world where food and other basic, in, uh, basic resources have either been exhausted or uh, just died off. There's no one to help these two pilgrims, no one to defend them, and no one to point them in the right way and give them safe harbor as they make their journey south. Uh, their only hope is that they can get south to warmer weather where there might just be a few nice people who don't present danger. 
And this journey requires great skill in a world where humans hunt humans, rob resources from one another, and are hungry for their next meal. So the only defense that these two pilgrims have are two bullets intended not for the enemy, but for themselves to deliver them from a gruesome death at the hands of ruthless men. It's a perilous and nearly hopeless pilgrimage with no certainty that there is even light at the end of the tunnel. It's a dark world. I think it's a very dark picture of what our world could be like. And yet it's vastly different from the theme that our text presents to us today. The psalm, penned by David, issues forth from the mouth of pilgrims who confidently express in praise that they themselves, as they take to the Lord, have the help of the Lord who continues to be their help delivering them from their foes. It's a psalm taken on by the mouths of pilgrims who confidently express in praise as they themselves take to the road that the Lord has been and continues to be their help delivering them from all their foes. And I want to look at that theme today in two ways. The first is the pilgrim's confession, looking particularly at verses 1 to 6, and the second is the pilgrim's procession, the pilgrim's confession and the pilgrim's procession. So first, the pilgrim's confession. Now, I want to start with a general outline of the psalm to orient us to its structure and what the psalmist is doing here. The psalm is ascribed to David and opens with what I want to call a hypothetical counterfactual. If it was not the case that the Lord was on their side protecting Israel, what would have happened to them? So it's a hypothetical situation, counter to fact, counter to what actually happened. And yet it's not David alone confessing what would have happened, but David calling out to the rest of Israel, all of God's people, to testify. It's as if he's saying, can I get an amen? Testify with me what would have happened if it had not been that the Lord was with us, if the Lord was not on our side. And we find the answer to that question in verse 2 to 5. Israel then takes up David's counter-to-fact scenario in their response. If it had not been that the Lord was on our side, then this is what would have happened to us. We see then in the second half of the psalm, in verse 6 to 7, not only what would have happened if the Lord was not on their side, but Israel's praise to God in light of what did happen because he was with them. And then there is a final closing statement declaring what has already become plain by this moment, since what would have happened didn't, and since the Lord did deliver them. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Notice then, as David calls out to Israel, that this is a corporate call. This is the confession of a congregation of God's people answering out to the psalmist here. And contextually, this makes sense, given that Psalm 124 is a psalm located in what are called the the Psalms of Ascents. In the Psalter, the Psalms of Ascents are Psalms 120 to 134 and are placed in the fifth book of the Psalter. The Psalms of Ascents are psalms that the people would sing as they were going up to or out of Jerusalem and the temple during the various cultic feasts surrounding Israel's uh, cultic life. This is why we can set the psalm in the context of pilgrimage, because it was a psalm used by pilgrims during their travels, most notably up to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, and out of Jerusalem during these cultic feasts. And so the psalms then are, these psalms are intrinsically tied to the corporate experience of Israel's cultic life surrounding the temple. 
So the people then take upon their lips the very hypothetical counter-to-fact scenario that David has set up. If it had not been that the Lord was on our side, when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Now, as they take up an answer to David's call, there is a temporal aspect in their response. The hypothetical is if the Lord was not on their side. But the hypothetical is regarding specific experiences and times in the life of Israel. It is when their enemies rose up against them, because this actually happened to the people of Israel. So in answering in this temporal way, the congregation is contrasting God and man here. Yahweh is with us, man is against us. And the point, I think, is to lead them to conclude that if it had not been the Lord who was with them, then nobody would have stood with them. They would not have survived, and they surely would have perished. And the inevitable result of thinking about it in these terms, what would have happened if God had not stood with them, is blessing and praise to God for delivering them from certain peril. And thinking on their deliverance, they are reminded of who God is. So it's appropriate then, as we now look at this psalm, having considered its movement, movement, um, to ask the question, what is the imagery that is being painted? How do the people explain what would have happened to them and the deliverance that God did bring to them in verse 2 to 7? Well, they paint their picture of hypothetical abandonment in verse 2 to 5 in the imagery of water, floods, and drowning. They describe those who rose up against them as swallowing them up alive because their anger was kindled against them. And this angry swallowing would have led them to be swept away and drowned by the flood, the torrent, and the raging waters. All of this flood imagery then, enemies whose anger is kindled, are described as enveloping and drowning, sweeping away the people of God. Now, what I find particularly interesting about this kind of imagery, about this language, is that the prophetic and wisdom literature in the scriptures regularly use this language to describe God's wrath against Israel when they kindled his anger. Now, we know, of course, that pictures of watery judgment are not foreign to the Old Testament. All we need to do is say that, and a couple images come to mind. First of all, Noah. So, in response to the wickedness uh, that he sees in the land, God says to Noah in Genesis 4, 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. We think on the Exodus narrative where Israel comes to the edge of the Red Sea. Then Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. So here Israel crosses on dry ground, and God, through Moses, is effectively stretching out his hand in powerful judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Another passage that we could look to for an example is Isaiah chapter 8, where the prophet testifies. Because this people has refused the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramaliah, therefore, look, 
The Lord is bringing up the waters of the great and mighty river against them, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he will rise above his channels and he will flow over his banks and he will sweep into Judah. He will overflow and he will flood up to the neck. In 2 Samuel 17, 16, we see this language of being swallowed up also has to do with the flood waters. It says there, So then, send quickly and tell David, don't spend the night at the fords of the wilderness. Moreover, by all means, cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Prophet Jeremiah also speaks of God washing over Babylon in judgment, and he also speaks in lamentations of God swallowing up the dwellings of Jacob without mercy. And also the prophet Habakkuk questioned why the Lord would raise up a nation more wicked than his own to punish uh, the people of Israel. And he says, why are you silent when the wicked swallows up someone more righteous than him? Interesting. Do you notice how similar the language throughout the Old Testament is to our passage today and its vocabulary? The kindling of anger, the flood waters that would have swept away or gone over the heads of God's people, the torrents that would sweep through the low valleys on a moment's notice, these are waters of judgment, the waters of the judgment of the Lord against the wicked. I know that living below Mount Baldy, it's been several years, but you guys get flood warnings like that too sometimes because it rains far more than you can tell down here in Chino, up in the mountains, and it swells over and floods over the aqueducts that they've built. Now, in the Old Testament, these are the waters of the judgment of the Lord that swallow up the wicked. These floodwaters, these raging waters, are enemies of judgment that God raised up to punish his people for their rebellion and for their hard hearts. And so, in the perspective of the ancient Near East, the ethos of the ancient Near East Water comes from the mount of God, and its emanating point is located at the watery entrance of death, also known as Sheol. So the mountain is the place where judgment is pronounced and is even symbolic often even of death because of its association with the watery basin where the waters swell up out of it. So here's how the image works. Those who live in the, we know this, those who live in the low valleys beneath the feet of the mountain, when it rained up in the mountains, they'd have no way of knowing what was going to happen. And suddenly, that's why you get an amber alert telling you, notice floods. So suddenly, the rivers would swell and wash over you, and it would swell over your neck. Indeed, you would be swallowed up alive. Jonah speaks of it this way, whilst deep in the waters in the belly of the whale, I went down to the fountains of the mountains, the underworld, also known as Sheol. So what's the point of all this? Well, the watery image the psalm is painting is how God brought upon Israel enemies to judge them for their hard hearts and wickedness. Instead of letting them be swallowed up completely by death, instead of letting them drown and be swept away by waters of death, he keeps their head above waters so that they do not drown. God has rendered judgment from up on high upon those at the foot of the mountain, and yet it does not sweep them away in death, even though they are wicked. That's interesting. On the other end of the spectrum, when Israel crosses a river or a sea on dry ground where otherwise it should be wet, it is because they are objects of God's complete and total grace, loving kindness, and blessing. 
This would be the case not just with the Red Sea when Pharaoh pursued them, but also when the Ark of the Lord went before them and they crossed into the Promised Land. So in this psalm, they're essentially saying that the Lord was with them in undeserved covenant mercy despite their hardness of heart, despite the justice of his waters upon them, they did not perish. Hmm. Instead, what did happen was that he sprang them loose from the jaws of the lion. He broke the trap and sprang them loose. Though the enemy sank their teeth in, yet we have escaped. Though the bird trap was successful, we certainly would have been butchered. God sprang us loose. Now, if you've ever seen an animal that is trapped, I haven't. That's what Discovery Channel is for. But if you've ever seen an animal in person that's trapped, you certainly uh, would know that it rises and thrashes to get, th- get free. But no longer, Israel confesses, do we writhe and jerk and violently resist like a trapped animal trying to break loose ourselves. Enemies did pour over Israel, but they did not drown. They did not die by the teeth of their enemy. They did get caught, but God sprang them loose. So the image is really not that God's people never have problems, or that the enemy is always put down, or that they always win by eight goals. We're talking soccer here, by the way. It's more like we were down by two goals with 30 seconds left, and somehow we scored three in the last minute, and we took the win. It's a big feat. So, okay, the church survives even when she suffers. The church is the object of God's mercy, even in their sin, Israel was. And God has done it from the very brink of death. He delivered his people. The creator who made the heavens and the earth is certainly powerful to deliver his people. And he surely has, as God's people now confess, and they rightly recognize, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He is the one that causes the waters to flow forth from the basins of the deep. He's the one that raises up enemies. Okay. He delivered us, even though we were suffering. Now, at first it might strike us, you should feel some tension here, at first it might strike us as odd that Israel is confessing that they would have perished by God's judgment if God had not been for them. But when we stop for a moment to think about it, we realize that this is actually very familiar, if not, I think, comparable to what we teach in the first use of the law. The law teaches us of our need for another, a mediator, whose blood would atone for our sin. Israel, now recalling that the Lord has spared them from perishing at the judgment they justly deserve, leads them to praise God's grace and help for them. Receiving judgment for their sin makes them realize just how great God is that he has not wiped them out completely or or exacted the full penalty of the law upon them for their sin, namely death. And so certainly it leads them to praise. Certainly it leads them to rightly recognize his grace and return to him more and more and cling to him. Contextually, this psalm is labeled a song of ascents, and that is exactly what they are doing. They're not just confessing God's goodness as they think back on and remember what he has done for them. They're doing that as those who are part of a procession. Now I choose that word for good reason. It means a group of individuals moving along in an orderly and often ceremonial way. 
That's what the Song of Ascent is for. It's the congregation of God's people who are in procession leading up to Jerusalem to celebrate the holy feast centered around Israel's cultic life in the temple. So take Passover, for example. Israel is making a pilgrimage in a procession-like fashion from their homes up to Jerusalem for this feast. As they do so, they are confessing, confessing their deliverance from God's just judgments to them as they make ready to feast upon a lamb whose shed blood points them to the blood of one whose shed blood would actually and truly atone for their sin. So they're in a procession into the city of their God towards its apex, the temple, whose whole point is to symbolize God's Uh, symbolize and show God's presence with them through this Pascal lamb whose blood wiped away their sin. And this was the practice, of course, of God's people during the reign of David and Solomon and Israel prior to their exile in Babylon. It was normative for them to recite as they made that pilgrimage. But The Psalter was compiled sometime after Judah went into exile in Persia. Now, we don't know exactly when that was or how that was, but it was either during their exile or sometime after they returned, before or after the temple was rebuilt. Hmm. In each and every case here, the land that they're returning to has a temple whose glory and magnificence paled in comparison to the last and to a city whose king is not Davidic. These are exiles returning, singing this, going up to Jerusalem to a templeless or inglorious and pathetic temple, praising God and blessing him because they did not get swept away by the raging waters of Babylon and Persia. So I think then, if I may, what the editors are doing in placing this psalm here in this way is showing that really and truly this deliverance, as they make their pilgrimage up to the city of Jerusalem for the feast, is pointing to a different pilgrimage and a different feast. Can't be the Jerusalem they're returning to. They're heading to a temple and a feast who's a feast much more glorious than the earthly one ever was. They're going to a heavenly city where the Lamb is never again required to be in God's presence. It's one that could not be made by hands, but one that was built by the recreator and the inaugurator of the new Jerusalem by David's own son. Now, in order for that to happen, however, there's a work that needed to be accomplished. A true lamb has to be sacrificed. Someone has to be cut off. Someone has to suffer the full extent of the waters of God's judgment that his people deserved. So to put this in perspective then, there is no man in history so opposed by men and by God as Jesus Christ. It was not just the enemies who came to take his life, but God himself who rose up in justice and judgment against him, so such that the day turned to night. He was swallowed up by wrathful judgment. So whereas God's people in exile were never totally abandoned by him or swallowed up in his judgment for sin, 
death. Christ himself was abandoned by God and given over to death as that true sacrificial lamb. His life was not delivered like a bird from the trap, nor was he delivered from the jaws of the teeth of his enemy, death. He was given over to the snare of the fowler. He was consumed by the jaws of death. And that could be the end of the story. And in many ways, I think that we can expect this level of suffering at the hands of our adversaries. Here's the tension. We think on Jesus' own promise to us that just as the world hated him, it would hate us. We look around uh, and we look at, say, the Chinese church or the church in Nigeria, and we wonder, has God not given them over to death? So if I'm applying the full weight of the judgment that's typified in this psalm to Christ, why are we the objects of suffering at the hands of our enemies? Where's the deliverance for the Nigerian and Chinese Christians? We remember the Reformation in the words of Hugh Latimer, who spoke dearly to his companion as they awaited burning at the stake. Play the man, Master Ridley, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. When has suffering at the hands of those we'd call enemies never been true of the church? The church is afflicted and beaten and battered and bruised. Paul discusses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in us, around the death, always carrying around the death of Jesus in our body in order that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are continually being handed over to death because of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our flesh. How can we promise suffering that might continually lead us to be handed over to death for Christ? If Christ was cut off and suffered judgment for us. Because here, death at the hands of our enemy does not carry the same connotation that it did for Israel. Here, death at the hands of our enemy, unlike Israel, which represented their judgment from God, has no connotation of judgment. And so the end of the story is not the death of Christ, where God's wrath was poured out like a flood on him. And that's how we know that what suffering we endure as the church is not judgment. Because the end of the story is that Christ himself did as the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25, verse 7, swallow up death in victory. Same language. Death is not just God's curse for sin, it's a judgment against sin. And in this way, it is a picture of the greatest threat that mankind has ever known, God's judgment. But in the resurrection, Christ... He who was swallowed up in covenant judgment swallows up death itself in victory and in his resurrection and ascension becomes the recreator, the inaugurator of a new Jerusalem and a heavenly Zion, cities which we are embarked on a pilgrimage toward. And then bursting forth in glorious day from death, he burst free from the snares of death and up from the grave he arose again. And now he has the power of indestructible life. 
No enemy can threaten that life that he has. So our hope as the church is not that we won't face our enemies or that we won't ever face peril that might lead us to be handed over to death. As Paul says, we're continually being handed over to die. Our hope as people who are also like Israel, pilgrims, is that our pilgrimage to the heavenly court is secured by the help of the Lord who drowned in death and then inaugurated the heavenly temple. The ultimate dilemma, our good news, is that the enemy who stands against man will now never have the last word. Not only that, but we never, ever, ever have to face judgment for sin at the hands of our enemies because Christ drank the full extent of God's wrath for us. He was completely cut off in the waters of baptism so that we, being baptized in him, would never suffer judgment for sin the way that Israel did. So our suffering as God's people on a pilgrimage is not even described as judgment, nor can any of it, even death itself, hinder our arrival at the temple for the final feast when we, be, when we ourselves will be clothed in indestructible life as the bride of Christ. Our hope in our pilgrimage is therefore also not like the hope of Cormac McCarthy's novel. That's a dark world. I think it's a fantastic and realistic picture of the world that we live in, but for the restraining grace of God. It's not two bullets we hope will bring us, bring us into, into the oblivion of death and deliver us. It's the sure knowledge that we are making our way not south where there might be help, but to the heavenly Jerusalem and the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the cultic feast we're traveling to. Jesus underwent the raging waters and came back. He crossed the Jordan before us so that we would never cross over on wet ground, but on dry ground, into that promised land. And so no suffering we ever experience will ever again threaten the security of our journey on that road. So when we, as a people of God, express that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, it's not some trivial matter. Mind you, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ, by whom and for whom all things were created. So he didn't just create in the ages past. He came down into creation to recreate. We are confessing this truth as those in the train of Christ's royal procession experiencing even now a foretaste of that heavenly new Jerusalem and we are confessing that he is the Lord who has dealt with the greatest problem we would ever endure And he has secured the safety and the deliverance of our pilgrimage. That's good news. That's good news worth suffering for. And that's good news worth persevering on a pilgrimage for. Let's pray. Father, be that as it may that we live in a world of darkness, of sin, of death, of terror, of dark skies and and perilous people, uh, perilous enemies, be them spiritual or physical, Lord, we know that you are indeed the king. Um, 
who was cut off for us and raised in indestructible life, and we now have great confidence and great hope. And we ask that you would encourage us with that week that our greatest enemy, death, has been conquered and that no judgment now remains for our sin. Help us to believe that promise, Father, and to confess as one people with one mouth that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Amen. We'll turn now in a song of application. Um, the God of Abram praise, number 234, and we'll do so standing together. Number 234, the God of Abram praise.
God's blessing comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen.